episode 81, Black Umbrella. I'm assistant curator Merle Regal, and you're listening to a May 20th, 2009 podcast from the Kansas Historical Society. In this podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind the story about artifacts featured on the Cool Things section of our website, kshs.org. I'm only happy when it rains. I'm only happy when it's complicated. Shortly after his 1861 victory, President-elect Abraham Lincoln boarded a train for Washington, D.C. This whistle-stop inaugural tour proved incredibly successful. Lincoln rolled through communities in Indiana, Pennsylvania, and New York, addressing massive crowds along the way. Yet swirling around his journey were Confederate plots for assassination. Join Assistant Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman and me as we examine an umbrella used to protect Lincoln as he addressed crowds on this historic tour. Who was the man holding the umbrella? And what was the bigger threat? Assassination or a snowstorm? Then, we introduce you to the odd legacy of Brett Favre and the Green Bay Packers. What do they have to do with Kansas? That's what we try to figure out when we play Six Degrees of William Allen White. But first, Black Umbrella. Hello, Nikayla. We are here to talk about an umbrella. Indeed. Kind of a significant umbrella. It's made of silk. You can't tell that really by looking at it because it's seen better days. It has a wooden handle that's kind of carved in a fancy way, right? But other than that, it's kind of an ordinary umbrella. Yep. But it is special because it was used by Abraham Lincoln in Utica, New York, right? Indeed. Indeed. So what was Lincoln doing in Utica and why was it so important that he stay dry? Uh, Well, Lincoln was actually in Utica, New York, as part of um, an inaugural whistle-stop tour from Springfield uh, to Washington. Um, This particular umbrella was used on February 18, 1861. While traveling along this inaugural tour, they had experienced several snowstorms. One of them took place in Utica, and the the umbrella was used to um, keep the snow off of the president-elect's head. At that point, at that inaugural point, he had just won a pretty brutal 1816 presidential election. And he saw the inaugural tour as kind of a way to relax, uh, see a little bit of the countryside with his family, and, you know, kind of work on his inaugural day address a little bit. Okay. Um, that's not really how it ends up being. It ends up being quite, a, a, quite an undertaking the whole uh, whistle-stop tour. Uh, Lincoln kind of underestimated the significance of the tour for two major reasons. First, I don't think he really realized how popular he was in the Northeast. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he had visions of making a couple stops along the way, going out, shaking some hands, kissing some babies, and moving on. <laughs> but consistently, every time he pulled up to the train station, there was four to, th- four to 5,000 people sitting outside the train depot or outside whatever lecture hall he was going to, waiting to hear him speak. So he had to give a real address, you know, a real, and he's an eloquent, he's a great speaker, right? Right, right. But he was one that he liked to have his speeches prepared. He wasn't an off-the-cuff speaker. Um, So there he was at multiple times having to stop and and say something. Well, the other issue is he didn't realize, is he didn't realize how, um, how significant 
the 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 secessionist movement in the South was, and and what a huge issue that was going to be throughout this whistle stop tour. Pretty much at every point, people were asking him what he's going to do about the South seceding mm-hmm. from the Union. So he's getting all these big, you know, insignificant questions. And oh, by the way, he's still the president elect. He's not the actual president yet. So he's kind of in the similar situation that uh, Barack Obama was in. People mm-hmm. are wanting to hear him talk about policy when he's not even the president yet. He can't mm-hmm. actually enact anything. So uh, it was a bit of a quagmire for him. Um, so he was actually invited to Utica by, uh, by uh, a Republican congressman named Roscoe Conkling, uh, who had supported Lincoln throughout the campaign. Um, and you ask, why was it important that he stay dry? Well, it was important that he stay dry because, because it was a pretty critical time. And you got to remember, it was only like 1841 when William Henry Harrison, um, giving an inaugural day address, con- contracted pneumonia and a month oh, later no. died. <laughs> so people were concerned about that and they didn't want that happening. So because particularly because of this president and the time period in which he was elected. So it's a critical time period. They don't want him to get pneumonia. So maybe they needed a presidential umbrella. You know, like something that went on the train. Yeah, or a presidential idea. slicker. Yeah, for the rock star president, anyway, it would make sense. Mm-hmm. And some galoshes, because, you know, if you get wet, that's no good. True. Okay, so Lincoln's campaign to become president had its roots in Kansas. How or why did this come to be? Right. I'm not going to say the campaign began in Kansas, because anybody can claim to be, you know, at some various point in his life that the campaign actually began. But you know what? The campaign had oh, some... come on. You want to say that? <laughs> the campaign had some early phases in Kansas. Well, you know, what his campaign began when he was 10 years old in Kentucky. I don't know. <laughs> Um, in the log cabin, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so Lincoln, he had served briefly as the in the U.S. House of Representatives, um, and then he failed to win two Senate seats. So what does he do in 1859? He decides I'm going to run for president. Well, why not? <laughs> um, so he's always, you know, he's from Illinois. He's kind of a Western-oriented guy. So he decides, well, let's 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 throw it out there. The idea that I want to run for president, I'll go do a speaking tour somewhere out west, and and we'll see how that goes. So he comes to Kansas. Um, and he's brought to Kansas by a relative and a friend of his named Judge Mark Delahaye, who's out here in Kansas working. Delahaye says, come on out here to Kansas, you know, get to see the countryside a little bit, speak to a couple people. So Lincoln travels through Troy, Atchison, Elwood. It's all in the northeast corner of Kansas. But what's more interesting about that is the speech that he is giving there is sort of the prototype to what will become the Cooper Union Address. He's testing out, you know, he's coming out here to an audience a little smaller, mm-hmm. not quite as elitist as, as some of the audiences he's going to be dealing with. And he's starting to work out the pieces of what his policy and what his ideas as a presidential campaign, what they're going to be. So, so so that's why he's here. He's working that early phase out. Which I guess we didn't mention that at that point. Kansas wasn't even a state. It's still a territory. Right, it's still a territory. And he's coming to Kansas also because Kansas is really critical in the presidential, in the upcoming presidential debate, whether Kansas becomes a slave state or not, whether slavery goes into the West or not. These are all going to be huge issues um, in that presidential campaign. So he's trying, you know, it's it's an image a little bit. He's out here. He's affecting Mm -hmm. things. Mm -hmm. So... That's what he's doing in Kansas. So you mentioned the um, Cooper Union Address, which was the speech he was practicing when he was in Kansas. And historians often cite that as being very significant in Lincoln's campaign to be president. Why was that the case? 
Uh, well, yeah, his Cooper Union address, I guess that's kind of, um, you know, I can, we'll, we'll go ahead and do it and draw a lot of parallels between him and Obama. Oh, you know, Obama's career <laughs> kind of got launched with um, um, the 2004, I think, when he gave an address at the Democratic Convention mm-hmm. that kind of, you know, made him a superstar after that. Well, that was um, uh, the Cooper Union address for Lincoln. That was a similar situation. Cooper Union, that's a university um, in New York. It's, very, it's a very prestigious school. Lincoln was brought in to speak to the audience. Basically, he's talking to the New York elite or the um, sort of the elite and wealthy of the East Coast. Um, So he comes in and he pretty much blows him away. I mean, he talks about his policy on slavery and he hits just the right tone. You know, he doesn't come off as a complete radical nutball abolitionist, but he also comes off as someone who clearly sees that slavery is something that's going to be needed, that's going to have to be dealt with. He delivers this address to the Grand Hall of Cooper Union. Everybody there is floored. So pretty much, you know, instantly his his address is is being is printed in newspapers all over the U.S. And all of a sudden he's becoming a superstar. So and and that Cooper Cooper Union address takes place like three to four months after he's traveling through Kansas when he's writing the first phases of it. So. Uh, in that matter of time, I mean, he goes from pretty much a little-known congressman in Illinois to suddenly he is the front-runner for the Republican Party. He's the, he's now a political superstar. Yeah, it was one speech. Pretty amazing. One speech that he wrote in Kansas. <laughs> awesome. Uh, okay, so from Cooper Union and putting himself on the map to a president-elect, um, the whistle-stop tour that we started out talking about um, – it was potentially dangerous for Lincoln. Oh, yeah. You know, this is the time, like you mentioned, you know, secession is a distinct possibility. Mm-hmm. That movement is stronger than people thought. Why did Lincoln choose to travel this way and what safety measures were taken? Well, travel by train was really the only option to get the president-elect to Washington. He, he wasn't uh, – it, it would be a long horse ride. But uh, <laughs> um, so – and, and also, I mean, there was an image to it. Uh, he was he wanted to be seen as a man of the people, and uh, and the whistle stop tour was was about the best way to do it. Um, but as like you said, there was a clear threat to his life, and that was coming from a lot of the uh, uh, the South who saw his um, policies on slavery to be you know be to be um, destructive to their economic system. So they didn't want him there, and plots began to emerge. Um, uh, plots for his assassination. because uh, And you also have to remember, at that exact time, at the exact same time, I mean, the South has seceded. There are states that have seceded at that point. Mm-hmm. So it's clear that there's a threat. And, and so the company that's transporting him, B&L Railroad, they've got a pretty valuable product on their train. And Lincoln... Prior to this, presidents don't have, they didn't really have security details. Mm -hmm. Um, There wasn't a lot of, nobody really envisioned a lot of threats to the life of a president, per se. Which is amazing. Uh, Yeah. You would think that even, you know, earlier on, they would have been a little more concerned. So when he's getting on the train, B&O Railroad, they obviously realize the significance. So the railroad hires security to protect their cargo, the president, Mm -hmm. who they hire is Alan Pinkerton who eventually founds the Pinkerton Detective Agency, hmm. or the Pinkerton Boys. Cool. Um, he's, 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 he's into, I mean, he is a detective. He's into basically security services. Um, and he's also into intelligence gathering. So he's proven to be pretty good at what he does. Um, Lincoln does also bring on 
uh, it's interesting because it's kind of the first symbols of a modern president when you see who's who's getting on the train with Lincoln. First of all, his whole family is getting on the train. Mary Todd and the three boys are on the train riding with him. I'm sure they're I mean, moving to D.C. Yeah, it's essentially like an Air Force One on rails. <laughs> um, and then there's the entourage. There's his secretaries, his private secretaries that are helping him. There is a major that has elected or has uh, volunteered to provide security. There's also the Pinkerton, uh, the Pinkerton men are on board as well. And for the first time, there's also a two-man press corps that's there. There's reporters that are riding along in the train, just like they do in Air Force One now. <laughs> the press is riding along in the train. So that's who's on the train. And the train, by the way, is pretty lavish. I mean, it is designed and built to be specifically a uh, inaugural day train. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's got, you know, it's got great furniture, woodwork all over. It's got an extra long couch for the president to take a little nap on. Yeah, he was pretty um, tall. Yeah, exactly. That makes sense. So that's the group that's moving out. So they're, they hit, a, you know, they're going hitting over 70 stops along the way mm-hmm. and addressing different crowds and, you know, hobnobbing with friends and and and. Um, uh, so they approach some of the final locations before they get to Washington, D.C. And as we both know, Washington, D.C. sits right, you know, it's between Virginia and Maryland. Mm-hmm. Um, Baltimore, these cities, Baltimore is the final stop right before D.C. Both these cities sit right pretty much in the border between the south and the north. Mm-hmm. And at particularly Baltimore, there's a lot of pro-Southern elements there, Southern sympathizers. So plots or at least Alan Pinkerton reports that he hears of plots to ex- to assassinate the president when he comes through Baltimore, um, and people pretty much take. I mean, it's it's certainly plausible that mm-hmm. there would that this could happen. So um, the plan is devised to essentially uh, they split the president and his family with some family members uh, and half the party essentially riding on a decoy train that stays in Baltimore and goes to Washington later, while Pinkerton loads up the president. And by night, they move out of Baltimore and into Washington, D.C. in the cover of darkness. So it sounds like a good idea. The problem is is that Lincoln kind of forever regrets that move Mm -hmm. because essentially it it creates an image of cowardice. Um, A newly elected president is entering his capital um, in the middle of the night. Secretly. Secretly. Yeah. so Lincoln kind of always regretted it. But there certainly were dangers. There was very valid dangers to his life, even even from day one for the poor guy. It would have been awesome uh, novel material for Mr. Pinkerton mm-hmm. to write about sneaking Abe Lincoln into Washington, D.C. Very cool. So Roscoe Conkling basically stole the umbrella from a spectator in Utica. Um, who was Conkling? And why was he such a sycophant? Okay, so Roscoe Conkling, he's a very fascinating character. At this time in 1861, he's kind of just a young, ambitious politician from New York. And he is, I mean, he's an advocate of a- abolition. Um, he, does, he, he doesn't promote slavery. Um, but he, he sees Lincoln as a rising star, and he's trying to hitch his wagon to that rising star. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's young and ambitious. Later, he's going to become a very powerful Gilded Age, Gilded Age politician, basically running the political machine in New York. Oh, wow. Which is impressive because the New, a political machine in New York is, is pretty resourceful. And you also got to remember that Lincoln is elected in a period of political patronage, which is a little different than what we see today with the civil, with civil service. I mean, when a president during Lincoln's period, when a president comes in, basically everybody from the previous administration 
is get they get cleared out mm -hmm. and you bring in your guys and I'm not just talking cabinet secretaries it's like everybody right. secretaries and everything yeah, go the white house chef is <laughs> you bring in a whole new a whole new group which means that while on that whistle stop tour at every point suddenly lincoln was meeting friends he never knew he had <laughs> relatives he never knew he had everybody's asking for a job in dc at the white house mm -hmm. and of course in utica you got Roscoe conkling who's been pulling for him since the beginning he wants a sweet job too so he's right there helping out the president and by golly if the if it starts snowing like it did in Utica Roscoe Conkling can make an umbrella <laughs> appear wow what power one way or another <laughs> So yeah, so he he did become a very powerful politician. Unfortunately, um, it's this idea of political patronage that kind of ended, uh, put the kibosh on his career because later on in eighteen eighty in eighteen eighty one, civil service reform will pass, and he will oppose it, and and he'll actually oppose it so much he refuses to do it and gives up his Senate seat. Hmm. Well, you know, nobody really cares that he just gave up yeah. his Senate seat, so he never really regains it. As we've seen, Roscoe Conkling would have done anything to get a presidential position. If Lincoln had liked him, what job might he have given Conkling? Right. Well, I think if Lincoln had actually liked the guy, I came up with some possible positions that he would have given him. Uh, the first one being umbrella solicitor general. Uh, kind of your duties are, I guess, just to kind of virtually make an umbrella appear out of nowhere. Yeah. Uh, if in time of presidential need. Sure. In time of emergency. It's obviously very important. Yeah. 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 Uh, another position is undersecretary of headgear defense. Uh, you know, because Lincoln's got quite a do going on. And you don't want weather messing with that. So you got to have somebody there with a plan to react. Right, right. And I think there is one picture of Lincoln where he definitely could have used this undersecretary. Undersecretary of headgear he, defense. He looks a little like James Lane. Like they had the same hairdresser. Exactly. Finally, uh, a position I think he could have filled is House Minority Umbrella, which I believe is typically seated next to the House Minority Whip. That's bad. That is so bad. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll hope maybe Obama will create some of those positions in his cabinet. Indeed. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Merle, for telling us about the umbrella. You bet. Time for another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White. Joining me today is curator Laurel Fritch. Hello. And assistant registrar Nikayla Zimmerman. Hi. Today we are connecting William Allen White to Brett Favre, a highly revered NFL quarterback. For most of his career, Favre played for the Green Bay Packers, but as of late, he appears to be willing to play for anyone with a good senior discount at the team cafeteria. Oh, that is a low, <laughs> low blow. <laughs> Uh, just a little general background on Mr. Favre. Uh, Brett Favre was born in 1969 near Gulfport, Mississippi, the son of the Hancock North Central High School's head football coach. After high school, Favre played for the University of Southern Mississippi, the only school to offer him a scholarship. While there, Favre earned, earned a teaching degree with an emphasis in special education. I thought that was kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. After one year with the Atlanta Falcons, Favre played 16 seasons for the Green Bay Packers. During that time, Favre took the team to two Super Bowls and even won one. In 2008, Favre formally announced his retirement, only to later change his mind. That year, Favre was traded to the New York Jets, which also didn't work out so well. Uh, right now, Favre appears to be on the search for a quarterback position. 
Uh, don't come knocking to Arrowhead Stadium. We just got a good quarterback, so let's not mess with that. <laughs> we learned our lesson with Joe Montana. Exactly. <laughs> um, all right, Laurel, do you have a solution? Uh, do you have a way to connect Mr. Favre to William Allen White? Oh, I sure do. Well, William Allen White was a political friend of Alfred M. Landon, and Landon ran as the Republican presidential candidate for the 1936 presidential race against FDR. And he received financial backing for his campaign from the DuPont family. And the DuPont company was founded in 1802, and it was primarily an explosives company. But in the early 1900s, they decided to switch their focus to chemicals, materials, and energy. Didn't they eventually end up inventing nylons? Yeah, definitely. From explosive material to nylons. Mm -hmm. And now they are working on sustainable energy solutions. So they're a constantly yeah. evolving company. That's what all the giant chemical companies are saying. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We'll see. Well, a friend of the DuPonts named Dr. James Tilton, he founded a town in Indiana and decided to name it after DuPont. So it was called the DuPont, or DuPont Indiana. Well, the Indian Packing Company had a location in DuPont, Indiana, but they also had a location in Green Bay, Wisconsin. And, as I'm sure everybody will know, in 1919, Curly Lambeau was working as a shipping clerk for the Indian Packing Company, and he and his friend George Calhoun decided to put together a football team and ask the Indian Packing Company to put up the money for jerseys and permit the use of its athletic field for practices. So the team quickly became associated with the Packing Company and so the name Packers was a natural fit and the Green Bay Packers have been the Green Bay Packers ever since. So I'm curious, what exactly do they do at the Indian Packing Company? I did try to research that, and it primarily had to do with wartime different kinds of packaging materials. So basically, they would help package things. And actually, within the very first season that the Green Bay Packers were a football team, the Indian Packing Company ended up shutting down and closing down. So uh, They just retained the name, the Packers. They sure did. And that's Packers, like actual packaging Packers. People that actually packed the packers stuff. Yep. Or Indian Packers. That's right. All right. Well, let's fast forward a little bit in Green Bay Packer history to 1992, when our legendary Brett Favre was acquired by general manager Ron Wolf. And in Green Bay, he had an incredible career. And I could go on and on and on about it. But it would probably be a little bit better if instead of doing that, all of our listeners decided to go to Lambeau Field to see the Green Bay Packer Museum, which is absolutely fabulous. Uh, Nikayla, I believe you also have a solution, a way to connect William Allen White uh, to Brett Favre. I do. As you mentioned, Brett Favre plays in the NFL, and the NFL was the brainchild of a man named Jim Thorpe, who was an all-around stellar athlete in many sports, competed mm -hmm. in the Olympics. And he was a Native American, correct? He was, and he attended um, Haskell Indian Nation School in Lawrence for a while. Yeah, in before Lawrence, running Kansas, away. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so the NFL was the brainchild of Jim Thorpe and a man named Leo Lyons, who was the owner of another football team called the Rochester Jeffersons. Ah, yes. Um, Jim the Rochester Jeffersons. <laughs> yes. As a teenager and a college student, Jim 
Thorpe played all kinds of sports, and in 1912, during a college game between Army and the Carlisle Indian Industrial School, Dwight Eisenhower injured his knee while trying to tackle Jim Thorpe. And as we know from previous podcasts, Eisenhower and William Lindsay White were golfing buddies, and William Lindsay was the son of William Allen White. Nice. So there you go. Very well done. What was that last game? The Carlisle 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 School? Indian Industrial School. Uh, who do they play? Army. Ah. That doesn't I sound see. like it would be a heated rivalry, but <laughs> no. that was a really good year for Carlisle. They only lost one game. So. Nice. Uh, Nikayla, would you like to issue the challenge for the next episode? Sure. For our next challenge, we take you to the land of the Nile River. We want you to connect William Allen White to Cleopatra, the last pharaoh of ancient Egypt. This Hellenistic female ruler made nice with the likes of Mark Antony and Caesar. But when things got a little dicey, she killed herself with a poison snake. Did William Allen White and Cleopatra both share a joy of snake wrangling? It's a fun hobby. Well, who wouldn't love it? So if you think you can connect William Allen White to the ancient uh, queen of the Nile, just send your solution to podcasts at kshs.org. That is podcast with an S. That concludes episode 81, Black Umbrella. If you would like to see images of the umbrella that once protected the head of Abraham Lincoln, at least from snowstorms, go to our website, kshs.org. To find out about our latest podcast postings or other new artifacts and photographs acquired by the Historical Society, go to our Facebook page. Just search for Kansas Historical Society. Come back in two weeks when Curator Blair Tarr examines two Civil War battle flags. These cavalry guidons belong to two Kansas units that stayed close to home during the war, defending the state from pro-slavery raiders. Find out what new information was revealed when these flags were returned from conservation treatment. This podcast has been a production of the Kansas Historical Society. Real people, real stories.